Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 408, if we have done our basic math correctly. Which is only like a 50-50 shot. Is it even that high, the odds? I mean... Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's like continuous adding one every week is really challenging. Well, I'll tell you, it's harder to do simple math when you're not sleeping. Yuck, yuck, yuck. See what I did there? Oh, that was such a good segue. Uh, well, listeners, I know I'm probably not the only one struggling to get quality sleep right now. And so I can't say that I'm complaining about this week's show topic of insomnia. Um, we've dove previously into sleep with episode 399 when we talked about um, amber glasses. And for those of you that were not listeners of that show, let me remind you that I did not understand that amber glasses are different from blue blocking glasses that are just not tinted at all. So if you're not familiar with those differences, you can go back and um, listen to that show. But I will say I've been using our Blue Blocks amber tinted glasses um, probably five nights a week. And I'll tell you the days that I sleep well are the five nights that I'm using them. So um, I want to thank this week's sponsor, again, Blue Blocks, who um, are the glasses that I have been using. And for our listeners, we have a 15% off code. If you want to try those out yourself, you can go to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash the whole view with code the whole view for 15% off. I did also want to point out these prices are Australian prices. So by the time you do the conversion, if you're American, um, using US dollars, and you use our coupon code, it makes a significant difference in the price because I know that they are not inexpensive. But I would argue, as you will listen to Sarah talk about on the show, the science of quality sleep makes it a worthwhile investment if you are looking to biohack your sleep cycle. We have a really awesome question from Caroline this week that um, I felt was a really great way to to talk about sleep because one of the things that we've done on this podcast, like many episodes over the last what like almost eight years of podcasting, um, we've talked about the importance of sleep and how sleep relates to um, our overall health, how sleep impacts immune function, right, uh, metabolism. Like I think any longtime listeners. Um, of our podcast are pretty aware that sleep is really important. But Caroline's question really gets to, I think, one of the um, the sort of bigger challenges of like, yes, I know it's important and I try, but what happens when uh, I just can't? And what happens, uh, what, what can we do for people with actual insomnia? So let me read Caroline's question and then we can sort of dig into some of the science. 
First, I want to let you ladies know that I really appreciated last week's podcast. As a longtime listener, I was really glad you both chose to speak out. I know times are crazy right now. Thank you for all your timely COVID-19 shows, too. And this may not be a current topic of interest, but I would love an episode all about insomnia. I know you ladies have spoken a lot about the importance of sleep on the podcast, but what about those of us who actually suffer from insomnia? It's been worse than ever this past week. Is there help for those of us who spend hours getting to sleep only to wake up a few hours later and not be able to get back to sleep. Thank you again for all the work you both do. I think Caroline doesn't realize how timely her question is. And I know we're going to talk about that. But what I do want to point out is her reference for those of you who are just listening to this podcast and don't know last week, her reference, um, we had the racial disparities and Black Lives Matter show. And um, when we talk about insomnia, and who is, as we've talked about previously on the show affected by um, sleep disorders, we're talking about stress as being a main factor. And I know, Sarah, you're going to dive deep into mm-hmm. that science. Um, and I know that my stress and increase of um, symptoms of insomnia increase with stress. And um, when we talk about racial disparities last week, we talked about increase of stress. So this is actually not at all off topic. And um, I know for many people between the stress of COVID-19 from a public health perspective, from job loss perspective, from, you know, economic impact. And um, now we're introducing um, additional stress factors as we have the largest, I don't know, historical civil rights movement of our time. I, I don't know what history will show this to, to be, but this is not an insignificant impact to everyone's life. And yeah. it's not at all surprising that Caroline's sleep is affected, my sleep's affected, and I'm sure a lot Mine of our has been too. Right. Yep. So um, I, I appreciate you diving into the science on this, and I'm looking forward to listening and learning and being reminded of how important sleep is. Because every time we do a show, I'm like, I've got to get better at sleep. <laughs> Um, Well, let's start with actually just defining what insomnia is, because I think um, a lot of people suffer from insomnia without actually recognizing it as as that term. So um, insomnia is a condition that is diagnosed purely based on symptoms, and it is uh, diagnosed based on, so there's uh, basically what's called short-term insomnia and chronic insomnia. Chronic insomnia... um, is something that lasts at least three months um, in which you have symptoms at least three days a week. So three days a week for three months and at least one of the following symptoms, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, waking up in the morning earlier than desired, um, having some kind of resistance to going to bed on appropriate schedule. So um, if if you're, this is one of the things that I will do is I will find something to do, find something to do, find something to do because I'm like somehow internally rebelling against the idea of going to bed. Um, and, or the fifth thing, difficulty sleeping without a parent or caregiver. So having some kind of, um, requiring some kind of crutch, um, in order to fall asleep, typically a person, right? So that wouldn't necessarily be like a, a teddy bear for a child, but more of a, this person must, must be there in order for me to fall asleep. So anyone of those sleep difficulties, three days a week for at least three months is chronic insomnia. What is short-term insomnia? 
the same thing, but less than three months. Um, so it's it's any of those three three times a week, which is really um, really common. And there are certain sort of what are considered predisposing or precipitating factors. So this would be like what are uh, causes sort of like what are the things that would make you more likely to have insomnia? So um, for chronic insomnia, um, one of the biggest predisposing factors is chronic stress. And that can come from work, relationships, or a large stressful event like a death in the family. Um, there's personality features that are associated with chronic insomnia, things like anxiety, um, things like um, a, a preoccupation with health concerns. There's various um, uh, conditions in which insomnia is a like symptom. So a lot of psychiatric conditions like mood disorders and anxiety disorders will have insomnia as part of the symptom. There are, of course, like sleep disorders like restless leg syndrome um, or obstructive sleep apnea that can cause insomnia. There are some other types of medical problems like um, gastroesophageal reflux disease, uh, any kind of chronic pain conditions, um, alcohol or drug abuse um, would be, uh, again, sort of like a predisposing factor because they can cause insomnia as a symptom. Um, there's also external factors. So for example, um, having a uh, undesirable sleeping environment can be an external factor. Um, having a really cramped living quarters where you don't have like space to really sleep properly. Poor sleep hygiene in, in general. So um, having too bright of an environment um, or too noisy of an environment, watching TV in bed, right? Having something that's, you know, like the, the classic recommendation that we've talked on, on this podcast before for, um, sleep hygiene is that, at the, you need to associate your bed with sleeping. Um, so there's really two activities that we're supposed to be, uh, doing in our bed and one is sleeping and the other one is, uh, definitely for, uh, adults only. And, um, and so everything else, right. TV watching should be done in actually a different room. Um, so that's considered part of this idea of sleep hygiene. Um, the predisposing factors for short-term insomnia are pretty much the same things, right? So, um, stressors in general, um, and again, like, uh, insomnia, even short-term insomnia can can be even sometimes a presenting symptom of other underlying conditions. Uh, when we have insomnia, right, insomnia is diagnosed based on the symptoms of not being able to fall asleep or not, and not being able to stay asleep and not being able to sleep long enough, right? Um, but there's other symptoms that are the consequence of that inadequate sleep. So symptoms of insomnia might include not feeling, feeling well-rested when you get up in the morning, um, feeling tired or sleepy during the day, irritability. Um, it can actually be a major trigger for depression and anxiety. Um, it can definitely hinder cognitive abilities. So that can manifest as difficulty paying attention, uh, focusing, um, memory issues. Um, it also sort of delays, um, uh, reaction times. It, uh, slows down our ability to solve problems. Um, so one of the symptoms of insomnia is increased errors or accidents. So you're, for example, much more likely to get in a car accident if you have insomnia. Um, and, uh, it, 
can also manifest as uh, ongoing sort of worrying about sleeping. So we're we're aware that we're not getting enough sleep and we worry about not getting enough sleep. And then we end up being clock watchers at night. And then that makes us even more anxious about it. So it can end up being this um, snowball of bad effect where the stress of not sleeping erodes sleep, which then magnifies stress. Um, insomnia is ridiculously common and uh, sort of like all epidemiological measurements. Um, it's really important, you know, even when I, in a podcast, quote, one stat, um, we always put in the um, sources for any statistics into our show notes. And of course we will for, for this episode as well, because epidemiology is always a snapshot. So you're always taking a portion of the population and then extrapolating. So what percent exactly something um, is will depend on how exactly the population that you're sampling and then how you define the criteria. So in insomnia, this is actually, um, insomnia is something in which the the definition has has really morphed over time. And so you see that reflected in the epidemiology. So there are different um, different studies that have looked at populations and have shown the prevalence of insomnia is anywhere between about 4% to 22%. Um, and the most recent criteria, which is the one that I actually just described, um, which is called the ICSD3 diagnostic criteria for insomnia, when you use that more narrow definition, chronic insomnia is estimated to um, to impact between nine and 12% of the general population, um, with the short-term insomnia affecting up to about a third of us, which is, um, like, that's pretty crazy when you think of, of like just how prevalent this is, because we've talked about on the show that, um, not getting enough sleep dramatically increases risk of, uh, for example, diabetes. So like sleeping less than six hours a night increases risk of developing insulin resistance by like 2.4 times. It like doubles risk of stroke. Um, it's a, a huge, um, huge contributor to basically all chronic illnesses, um, but especially metabolic related chronic illnesses, so cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity. Um, with cancer, there's not a, as strong a link between uh, chronically inadequate sleep and cancer diagnosis, but there is a link between uh, sleep and cancer survival. So if you are a person who sleeps enough upon diagnosis with cancer, you are more likely to survive, survive that cancer. So we see, um, we see these links between inadequate sleep and, and chronic illness. And, um, and one of the things that I want to, um, I want to do in every podcast, in every article that I write, um, is really start bringing in racial disparity statistics. And I think that's really important to help our listeners be more informed. Um, instead of always talking about general population, which is tends to be the statistics I grab when we're talking about something like this in a podcast, um, it is my commitment to start also bringing in statistics on racial disparities um, when those statistics are available. And given the very strong link between insomnia and stress, um, it shouldn't be a surprise that there are racial disparities in insomnia. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, uh, Black Americans are approximately 67, about two-thirds times more likely than whites to um, 
have insomnia and they there's um, a study that we'll we'll put the the reference in the show notes um, published in 2016 that looked at racial disparities in um, sleep and this study was really fascinating because they did uh, a statistical analysis looking at um, comorbidities so looking at all of these other chronic illnesses that are linked with um, short, what's called short sleep. So inadequate sleep, that's usually um, defined as six hours per night or less. And, um, and so what they found was that the sleep, lack of sleep itself was the thing that was statistically linking the chronic illnesses. So um, you could actually predict the occurrence of chronic illnesses based on sleep. And we talked last week about the black community um, uh, being um, much more at high risk of uh, chronic illnesses, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity, and the multiple factors um, that are really the results of systemic racism that go into that disparity. Um, this is really interesting because you can draw the same sort of line of systemic racism, increasing uh, stress, um, making it more likely for any of those um, predisposing factors to exist, and that being responsible for um, people of color in general, because this also applies to the Hispanic community, um, having uh, being more likely, much more likely, to not get enough sleep um, and not get enough sleep whether or not they actually technically have insomnia. Um, so what's really interesting is even when you take insomnia out of the question, Black Americans are still more than twice as likely to not get enough total sleep compared to white Americans. And not that white Americans are doing a great job on the sleep front either. Um, and so What's fascinating is that this particular study was able to show that that lack of sleep is the thing that is contributing to the racial disparities and chronic illness. Um, and so that was, it's like, rather than saying uh, A leads to C, it's basically saying A leads to B and B leads to C. Um, I mentioned the Hispanic community because I think that's really important. There was another really fascinating um, paper that showed um, what they actually did was they followed um, people over about 10 years and looked at how insomnia changes over time. And it's because we are more likely to develop insomnia as we age. And in part, that's because of the accumulation of chronic health problems of which insomnia is a potential symptom. Um, because we, those, uh, all of those chronic illnesses tend to increase prevalence with age. And what was really interesting about the statistical analysis that they did was that they were actually able to show that for um, white and non-Hispanic Black um, people in their cohort, uh, it was an American cohort, um, that the accumulation of um, insomnia, right, so the increasing, either increasing severity of insomnia or um, increasing proportion of insomnia was very tied with health conditions. Um, but in Hispanics, it actually increased sort of disproportionately. So the Hispanic population saw a much more dramatic increase in insomnia with age that 
um, when you corrected for the accumulation of all these health conditions was still there. Um, so that is sort of an interesting um, racial disparity in the sense that it really points to some kind of um, chronic stress as being a, a contributor rather than um, it being the direct result of just the accumulation of health issues with advanced age. Advanced age doesn't seem right. That seems, I don't want to think of advanced age. That makes me feel old to say that word. <laughs> um, I don't have another phrase for you, mm. uh, but we are full of wisdom of of the knowledgeable age. I mean, what what oh, are we going to say like, there? Um, oh, I like knowledgeable age. I'll take knowledgeable age <laughs> with with. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, yes, with of the accumulation age. of experience. Yes. yes. <laughs> So again, you know, insomnia is a fairly um, a fairly unique chronic illness, in the sense that it is it's much more of a of a name that is given to symptoms. Okay, I guess most chronic illness is that, but there's not a like blood test that you can do for insomnia. There's not a marker that we can say, aha, look at this, you know, we've diagnosed you as having insomnia. Um, it really is almost like a, a behavioral symptom in some ways. Um, so it really, what it is, is a consequence of things like um, stress it can be a consequence of having a travel or work schedule that is messing with circadian rhythms and the internal clock and is basically, um, you know, causing, uh, it's either not conducive to a good sleep schedule or it's messing with the hormones that are controlling sleep. Um, but you can have insomnia without, you know, melatonin being, diminished. So it's, it really is, um, it really is the sort of sum of all of these different factors, right? It can be the direct result of poor sleep habits, things like, uh, watching TV right before bed, uh, playing video games, doing something that's really stimulating. It can be, um, just the result of having an irregular sleep schedule. Uh, it can be the result of, uh, evening snacking. Um, so it is a, a condition that we give a name to that is really related to the sort of culmination of the effects of, um, of, uh, stress plus sort of like, um, behavioral or routine type, um, contributors to how our body prepares for sleep and actually initiates sleep. I think that's a really interesting perspective for me, not just for my own sleep habits, but um, I don't think I'm sharing Matt's secrets when I talk about his um, lifelong medical diagnosis of ADD for which he was medicated at a very early age. And we've talked before on the show as how difficult that is to migrate off of that medication mm -hmm. and a driver for me trying to impact lifestyle factors um, for the children so that they don't have that same struggle as they get older. And what I've noticed is that um, 
his cycles are so much different, I'm sure, as a result of the medication. And it causes him to, for example, fall asleep on the sofa at five o'clock, but then have like this burst of energy very late at night, which drives him to be overstimulated because he acts upon that energy burst, which then, of course, creates like this um, ongoing cycle. And so I'm curious if you have information on other medicine, for example, that might um, have a role in that and any kind of recommendations for not just, you know, the um, lifestyle factors that could potentially be unavoidable, but also for these medical conditions that, Mm -hmm. um, or medication that could be causing these factors. Yeah, that's a really good point. So there's actually a lot of medications that can interfere with sleep. Um, ones that are sort of very well known is there's many antidepressants, for example, um, that can interfere with sleep, um, and basically cause insomnia. There's also, um, many medications for asthma, um, as well as for lowering high blood pressure have, um, some stimulants in them that can, again, sort of interfere with sleep. Um, there's actually a lot of oh, like cold medications um, can have stimulants in them. Allergy medications can have stimulants in them. And for a lot of people that um, interferes with sleep quality. And there's a lot of like the, you know, like the weight loss magic pills. Um, a lot of them are just chock full of stimulants or like super high caffeine levels, which can also disrupt sleep. And actually that's another important point to, to make is that, um, caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol are all very well known to disrupt sleep. And so um, while caffeine might be hiding in a um, product that you're taking that you might not know, um, and that's disrupting sleep, um, generally nicotine and alcohol aren't hiding as much. Like typically people are a little bit more aware when they're um, imbibing those things. So um, so I think it's really important to, to also recognize that um, – there are certain medications that uh, you might be disrupting your sleep without knowing it with that medication. Um, that means it's very worthwhile having a conversation with your healthcare provider about other options. Um, I, you know, remember again, Stacey and I are not doctors and we never advocate for you making a unilateral choice to discontinue a medication that your doctor has prescribed for you. That is not cool. Talk to your doctor about it. Explain what's going on and what your challenge is. And um, and then we can also talk about ways of treating insomnia that can be effective even if you are taking a medication that you might need for another health condition. So that I think is is actually also a really important a really important thing to talk about. Agreed. I'm glad you made that <laughs> reference to not being medical <laughs> professionals because I try to remind you of that all the time. And I think that there are some medical conditions that you might not be able to get around that. For example, ADD medication in and mm-hmm. of itself is a stimulant. Like there's there's no way around that. But um, Matt has modified the different medicines that he's taken over the last decade as he's changed his lifestyle and been able to either reduce dosage in the care of a medical professional or um, even change the kind of medicine that he takes because um, the way that it's uh, released into the body at different times and all of that plays into sleep cycles. So don't think that just because you or someone you love has a specific condition that you can't work with a medical condition, work with a medical professional to um, 
try to optimize sleep because if you explain to them that you're not sleeping, it will be very important for them to work with you mm-hmm. on modifying that because doctors know how important sleep is from the plethora of science that's out there. And they might not know as much as, you know, would be ideal um, just because, you know, new information comes out all the time and, you know, what they learned in school might not have been, you know, what's out now and all that stuff. But it is a priority for all medical professionals to ensure that their um, patients are sleeping. So if you're not, please let them know and, and work on that. Yeah, I think it's it it's another one of those things that we don't necessarily think of when to, of mentioning to our doctors unless um, you have a doctor who's has it on their radar enough to ask. Um, and I think I can speak from personal experience um, that having symptoms that I normalize is one of the things that really delayed like my diagnosis of Hashimoto's thyroiditis by you know just a couple of decades longer than actually necessary. Um, And so just because something is your normal does not mean it is normal. And so it is always, um, it's always okay to just say, you know, hey, and I've been going through this. Is that okay? Right? With a doctor. That's always okay to ask questions. Um, Worst worst case scenario, it is a normal thing. And, you know, you spent a whole minute talking about something that was unnecessary. Right? That's, but when it comes to sleep, that's probably not it. So when it comes to treatments, um, there's basically pharmacological treatments, aka sleeping pills, and non-pharmacological treatments, and nothing's perfect when it comes to insomnia. Um, But let's talk a little bit about sleeping pills, because for a lot of conventional doctors, this is likely to be, you know, their go-to is to be like, and here's some Ambien, um, or something else, right? Uh, Some Lunesta. Um, And not to call out those particular two uh, on top of, you know, any of the other ones, but it's really important to emphasize, uh, three things. One is that almost every option uh, of a less sleeping pill, um, is habit forming, which means that eventually you will not be able to sleep without it. And, um, every single option has, um, pretty, awful side effects that impact a majority. It's These aren't um, side effects that like 10% of people have these side effects. These are side effects that um, are, are really broadly experienced. And they can include things like dry mouth, um, upset stomach, headache, dizziness, um, sleepiness through the day. So um, there's that sort of like tail of when it's still in your system and you're still feeling really just gross. Um, you know, of course, there's sort of famous stories of Ambien calling, uh, causing like this like sleepwalking. Um, and I was actually was talking with a friend who had um, taken Ambien and uh, paid a bunch of bills in the middle of the night um, and made potato salad and then woke up the next morning and like his bills were all paid and he'd made potato salad with like no recollection. And it was really scary for him because he was like, okay, it's great that I paid my bills, but what if I had, you know, gone on a shopping spree with, you know, money that I didn't have? Like, you know, there's other things that I might've done in that period of time. Like, how did I not burn my house down making potato salad in my sleep? Um, you know, that was, you know, it was a funny story because it 
it was a harmless thing. Um, but there's so many examples of, of people taking these types of medications and having really, um, uh, I mean, that's an unsettling side effect to have, um, to, to be, I'm like, had you seen my face as you told that story, it went from like horror to laughter to worry. It was like, yeah, what? Um, I know it's a funny story. He made potato salad and paid his bills. I will say, uh, we have not experienced these type of symptoms, uh, with, melatonin I again Mm -hmm. I can't speak for everyone I'm not a medical professional but I because um symptoms of insomnia are also symptoms of ADD probably because of the circadian rhythm factor and other um stimulation factors and things like that um we have found it to be a helpful tool here without those kind of side effects do you want to maybe just like remind our listeners the difference between um, symptoms of sleeplessness and those kinds of things from circadian rhythms versus Mm -hmm. um, some of uh, the ones that we've talked about from insomnia and how they maybe vary a little bit. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, if you're experiencing it, it's really hard to know if your insomnia is, caused by like chronic stress or an underlying health condition. I mean, if you're taking a medication that causes sleep disruption, you can probably go like, aha, that's the thing. Um, but versus circadian rhythm, um, mismatch. So where basically your cortisol and melatonin are not synced with the sun. Um, and so in terms of the experience, it might be really hard to pinpoint, um, but so, and I, I highly recommend again, going back and listening to our melatonin show because we went through a ton of science on, um, where melatonin can be helpful and where it's been shown to be pretty, uh, underwhelming, but where it is, uh, you know, quick summary where it is very helpful is in uh, circadian rhythm dysregulation conditions. So that would be in like shift workers in jet lag. Um, you can have, challenges with circadian rhythm just from severe chronic stress. Um, and, uh, and of course we, we talked about in episode 399, we talked about how important light is for supporting melatonin. So there are other things that can kind of, uh, contribute to not producing enough melatonin, uh, in the evening or producing it too early or producing it too late and having cortisol come on too early or having cortisol not spike high enough or spike too high that ebb and flow of melatonin and cortisol um, are really critical for regulating sleep patterns. And so melatonin, where it can be, as a supplement, where it can be helpful is where there is a need to exert an exogenous force on the circadian rhythm regulation. And so for some people with insomnia, it can be really helpful because their insomnia is at least in part caused by circadian rhythm disorders, um, where it isn't particularly helpful is where that insomnia is more multifactorial and or more driven by chronic stress. I'm glad you mentioned the um, light factor because I know from experience both with myself and with my kids that the with the cycle for us is increase of stress leads to increase of consumption of 
screen time, whatever that may be, mm-hmm. right? It could be a release, um, whether reading something on a phone without like a, a blue light block. It could be um, watching television because you're trying to wind down, but that's not actually winding you down. Yeah. Or um, for my kids, it's video games. And that causes this ripple effect of um, the disruption. But then if it's not addressed, it becomes this more um, big factor that leads to other conditions and longer term disruption. So um, I think while we've talked about a lot of different um, ways that we can know if we have symptoms or what we can do about it, one of I think one of the things that I have seen be helpful is, for example, Matt has started reading um, books, physical books mm-hmm. before bed um, because there is no bright light from that. <laughs> they tend not to shine. Right. And we've installed yeah. um, like the bulbs, the nightstand bulbs that we have are mm-hmm. um, more warm red light versus um, blue light. And then also using blue block glasses if we are going to be watching television or something like that later in the evening, um, which is why, of course, we asked blue blocks to sponsor the show because I do think that if this is something you're working through um it's not like you're gonna decide today that you're gonna have better sleep habits and it's just gonna happen like this is the kind of thing that takes time to work on with consistency and mm-hmm. breaking habits like it's like most things that we talk about on this show it's very important to health but it's also something that takes consistency and when you're stressed just like you'll start craving sweets more or you know salty whatever it is that you have because that is a hormonal factor in your body right that's driving Mm -hmm. you to want those things it is also a stress factor that I see that we our sleep is affected like we're experiencing right now and you need to we need to really hone in on those sleep habits and those kinds of things in order to break that cycle it's not like you decide one day and then it's <laughs> fixed and you never have problems again you know so what you couldn't see was my very enthusiastic nodding through all of that <laughs> it's like yes i agree yes i agree um so let's let's I, i'm going to take that amazing segue and talk about drug-free strategies for insomnia because cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, also um, the acronym is CBTI, um, actually has been in double-blind, randomized controlled trials been shown to be more effective than drugs over and over and over and over again. Um, There's a huge number of, of clinical trials basically showing hands down CBTI is the most effective treatment for insomnia. Um, so what CBTI is, is it's, it's typically sort of done in like a group therapy type setting. Um, it's typically a couple hours a week. And in that, it can be done also one-on-one. But what, um, what it does is it basically looks at um, causes of insomnia, right? So those predisposing factors and what can be mitigated. And it has um, a variety of different components. Um, One component that studies have sort of separated this out and shown that this is actually a really important part of how CBTI works is what's called sleep restriction therapy. Um, And so 
what this um, does is it recognizes um, that there is what's called a homeostatic drive for sleep. So we actually have these like chemicals that build up in our brain throughout the day that eventually make us feel really sleepy at night. And then we sleep and it flushes those chemicals out. And caffeine inhibits the ability of those chemicals to bind, which is why caffeine makes us feel more awake. And so what sleep restriction therapy does is it basically tries to reset that homeostatic drive for sleep by, you know, basically saying things like no naps and you go to bed at midnight um, or, you know, whatever. It's like basically going to bed fairly late for you so that basically what happens is you're so exhausted by the time you go to bed by really disrupting, like really changing up like all of your different crutches for keeping yourself awake throughout the day that you fall asleep really quickly. Um, and then of course that bedtime can be inched backwards once you hit that point where like, yes, and now I fall asleep. I'm so exhausted by the time I go to bed, I fall asleep really quickly. Um, another aspect of CBTI is called stimulus control instructions. Um, so this basically looks at sleep habits, um, and then basically pinpoints different things that you might be doing that are overstimulating in the evening that might be prohibiting sleep. And that includes sleep hygiene education. So there would be a whole like list of things that are customized to you that uh, you either, you know, the yes list and the no list, don't do these things, do these things. And there's all the things that we always talk about on the show, right? Avoiding caffeine, um, especially in the afternoon, alcohol and tobacco, uh, sleeping in a cool, quiet, dark room, um, you know, uh, having some wind down time before bed that's not stimulating something like reading a book. So that's all kind of incorporated in CBTI is really looking at the uh, habits around sleep and the routine around sleep. Um, one of the things that they will always instruct you to do, um, which is something that we've talked about on the show many times, is the importance of sleeping on a consistent schedule. And that's because of the hormone regulation that is controlling sleep. If we're not sleeping on a consistent schedule, our, our body can't ramp up hormones predicting that we're going to go to bed late tonight. Like I, That's not how our bodies work. It just goes, aha, we normally go to bed at 10 p.m., I'm going to ramp up those hormones. Um, and then if you go to bed at, at midnight, you've basically missed that peak time of melatonin where your sleep quality was going to be the best. Um, another part of CBTI is relaxation training. This often involves mindfulness practice, um, but they have a lot of other types of relaxation strategies. Um, there's something that they teach called um, uh, what's called remaining passively awake, um, so it's basically, you're basically being told, uh, to like lie down and relax, but don't fall asleep. Um, so you're basically given permission to not fall asleep, which makes it easier to fall asleep. Um, which is kind of like a, a fun, like backwards psychology thing. Um, and then the last piece of CBTI is biofeedback. So this would be, uh, you might do this with, a uh, some kind of tracker, um, or you might be taught basically how to like measure your own heart rate or, um, observe your own levels of mus um, muscle tension. Um, and that might be incorporated into a mindfulness practice, but basically the idea is to be able to really understand your daily patterns of markers that might be reflected in your sleep quality. So for example, if your heart rate variability 
is low, uh, that is a sign of chronic stress and that can often reflect in poor sleep. So maybe you're in this biofeedback part of CBTI, maybe you're tracking your heart rate variability. So it's a, a piece of a more data-driven generally um, part of tracking so that you can really understand the contributors to sleep. So you can sort of look at that and go like, well, that's a pretty comprehensive education for sleep. There's a couple of things that can sometimes be layered on top of it. So um, exercise interventions have been studied as part of CBTI and then also separately. Um, and what's interesting is that the like old school recommendation of not exercising before bed has sort of been debunked in the scientific literature. And they've basically found that um, there are certain people who exercising in the evening will disrupt their sleep, but as a general rule, it's it's not the case. So they basically say um, exercising helps support sleep. Um, and there's a bunch of studies showing that um, especially aerobic exercise compared to resistance or like strength exercise um, is very good for supporting sleep. Um, even like 30 minutes, three times a week shows a modest effect, but still a measurable effect. Um, and so this can often be part of CBTI, where we're like doing this really holistic approach to all of the barriers that uh, each person has to good sleep. Exercise can be incorporated. And for some people, just adding in um, exercise can't by itself can be very helpful. And then typically what's used, done in CBTI is like if the only time you have to exercise is at 8 p.m., like try it and see how that impacts your sleep. Um, and they're, they're basically discovering that for a lot of people, it matters more that exercise is regular and on a schedule than what time of day it is. That's interesting. I mm -hmm. do not consistently have days and times. So that's something I'm going to look into. Helpful information as always. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> so this next piece, um, Stacey, I know this is your favorite. I like um, literally was holding my breath from when I just spoke. <laughs> like, oh, um, so le listeners, if you don't know, I am one of those people who, despite believing that the moon affects my beliefs or my moods, uh, believes that meditation is too woo-woo for me, despite the fact that there's science that totally supports it. So what I will say yeah, is yeah, that... Yeah. Science that supports meditation, right? But, but not, not the, the moon. moon. But, but you know, my <laughs> my brain is convinced of the opposite. So, got it. I have talked several times through COVID about practices that I've implemented, mm -hmm. mindfulness practices that involve meditation, breathing, and meditation, calming, meditation. And so if you listeners are also <laughs> of the belief that you just can't even with meditation, try to listen what Sarah's about to say with an open mind that it could just be something as simple as following some breathing exercises on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, um, one of the things that I absolutely adore about you, Stacey, of the many, 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 many things is uh, your disdain for meditation when you meditate nightly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, it's so great. It's so great. Um, it's almost as great as talking about poop. Um, so oh, well, you uh, just took my like uncomfortableness to a whole new level. 
So, listeners, listen, that and bugs in my lettuce, okay? I never said it was perfect. Oh, I found a live bug in my lettuce like two days ago, and I totally thought of you. Um, I almost took a picture, but it was like racing to get dinner on the table. Um, So, that wasn't just another aside. Um, We totally ate the lettuce. Um, So, with mindfulness and insomnia, there's basically two different approaches. So one is what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. um, And that is like a whole independent program that teaches uh, meditation. It's typically done, again, sort of like group classes. Um, So it would be like a a whole class on how to reduce stress. And then there's what's called um, mindfulness-based therapy for insomnia, which basically incorporates that mindfulness practice into CBTI. So there's, there's, to, right, so there's mindfulness basically by itself versus incorporated into this greater strategy that really tries to address every single piece of what's going on in insomnia. And what's been really interesting to see is that mindfulness by itself is very effective, and it's even more effective when combined with CBTI. And depending on the measurements, you either see them as sort of being equally as effective. Um, so it depends on exactly like, are you measuring, uh, total sleep? Which population are you looking at? Um, what, you know, what is, what is exactly your outcome? Cause there's different ways of measuring uh, efficacy when it comes to insomnia. Um, but mindfulness by itself has been shown to be just as effective, if not more effective than drugs. Um, and there seems to be this like even better effect when you combine it, especially when you look at sort of long-term. So if you look, um, at a person 12 months out, typically they will have continued or at a higher rate to, um, be getting good sleep compared to somebody who just did mindfulness. And you, that to me makes sense. Mindfulness is an incredibly powerful strategy, but, uh, without the educational piece of, like importance of sleep hygiene and consistent bedtime um, and, you know, understanding all of these other contributors to uh, sleep quality. Like to me, it makes sense that you would have, if you have a more robust education that is really focused on sleep, that that would be like the best approach. And so the last thing that can be layered with CBTI which has been shown in a couple of recent studies to be very effective, is wearing blue blocking glasses. And uh, this to me was the actually really exciting. So uh, I'm going to talk about two different studies. And again, we'll, we'll link to the actual studies in the show notes if anybody wants to, to go and actually read them. Um, so the first one was published in 2018. They took 14 people with insomnia and they had them either wear uh, blue light blocking amber lenses or placebo lenses uh, with these like wraparound frames for two hours before bedtime on seven con- consecutive nights. Um, and what they actually showed was there was a marked improvement in um, in total sleep time for the people wearing the amber glasses. They did a variety of different measurements. So they did questionnaires and, um, like sleep diaries. And then they also did wrist, um, actigraphy, which we've talked about on the show before. It's basically like wearing a like fancy Fitbit on your wrist and it's helping to, um, measure sleep by looking at, it looks, um, it measures how light it is. So it can tell 
like when you turn out the light. Um, and then it's also measuring your movement throughout the night, which can be a fairly good measurement of, of sleep. It's used in, um, it's used in sleep research quite a lot. Um, so, uh, so what they found was amber glasses, um, actually made quite a large difference to sleep quality and total sleep time. Um, then, and just in just seven days. Um, so that was study one in a small population of people with insomnia. Um, this brand new study was just published this February, February, 2020. And this study was, I thought, super cool because what they did was they actually layered amber glasses on top of CBTI. So they had 30 patients all with insomnia, with chronic insomnia. They all went through the same CBTI group therapy program. And then they were again, sort of randomly assigned to either having blue light blocking glasses or placebo. And they again had all these different ways of measuring sleep, including a wrist actigraphy. Um, so they, and they did not just measure sleep, but they also did a variety of, um, what's called semi-quantitative analysis. So they basically take all of these different questionnaires that give you a score at the end. Um, and they did scores looking at anxiety, depression, um, like looking at sort of quality of life in general. So they weren't just looking at, um, how much sleep the people were getting with and without, blue glasses after following a cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. But they were also looking at those symptoms of chronic sleep deprivation, right? So the mood symptoms, the anxiety and depression symptoms, the how much energy do you have? So all of those things were um, measured as part of all of these different questionnaires. And what they found was that the group that um, now this was crazy. So the group that had the amber glasses had a really huge improvement in uh, how many minutes they were sleeping. Um, and ov over the, the period of time, so like each person was their own before and after, right? Whereas the people who did the, um, the CBTI alone and had the placebo glasses actually over the, the period of time that they were, they were watching these patients um, actually had their sleep get worse. Um, so that's not typical for studies with, with CBTI, but the way that this was set up, what they were actually able to show was compared to getting slightly worse, um, the amber tinted glasses, blue blocking glasses group um, had a really significant improvement in their various measurements of sleep, but also in measurements of anxiety, in measurements of depression, and in what's called the hyperarousal score. Um, and they were able to basically show that, you know, not only was um, sleep time improved, um, that all of these other markers of what would be really markers of like sleep quality, because um, it's hard to measure sleep quality without like a polysomnogram. Um, so what they were actually showing was um, a improvement in total sleep time, although not, not enormous, but then this really marked improvement in the symptoms that would be associated with inadequate sleep. And so what they were actually able to show was, 
you know, the effect of amber glasses, you know, basically between these two studies, we show that, you know, blue blocking glasses by themselves can be very, very helpful. Um, but that they really are even more powerful when combined with this more um, holistic, comprehensive approach to addressing um, insomnia through looking at all of the different behavioral contributors, sleep hygiene, and of course, incorporating something like mindfulness so that we're appropriately addressing the stress piece. I think you've provided a whole picture of pages of notes that I've taken on what we need to improve and how we can do better. I knew at the top of the show that I was going to be reminded of all of the reasons why this is important and the things that we can do better. And I'm really grateful that we took the time to revisit this and you diving into the research. I love this new um, research on amber tinted glasses as well, because um, honestly, it's enough to make me go get all of the boys a pair right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I think from my personal experience between being at home with the boys for the last few months and now we're moving into summer, I, when this show airs will be the first day that my kids will have officially been out of school. And I know Sarah years have been out for a while, but it feels like forever. It's, (laughs) it's like this huge weight on my chest and um, this is not comparable to anybody else's experience. I personally have been a, working mother for my entire motherhood and the year (laughs) that I take to be what I thought was just picking up and dropping off my kids turned to be much more. And I questioned my ability to even be able to do it at many points. And so to be looking at this week, knowing it's the last, um, has been something I've been anticipating for quite a while, but that's, anticipation, that anxiety of knowing all the things that we need to do to finish school this week and what are the uncertainties of summer without the freedom that the kids normally have to play with friends and all Mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff. And compounded with the changes that need to happen in this country that I personally feel a responsibility to continue to advocate and push for. And all of the different things just they build up inside of you sometimes without even realizing that your sleep is being affected to the degree that it is. Because for me, at least, that cycle gets later and later each night, which means your stress is, you know, your sleep is reduced each night. And that compounds to all of these health issues that we've talked about. And it's not worth it. None of it is, you know, it's nothing is the other thing is it's not benefiting me at all to stay up later and to get less sleep. Like there's no good coming out of the negative side effects of lack of sleep. And so it's not like I'm doing something productive during that time. I'm like, okay, this is a good reminder of things that I need to do. I know the things that help me, the mindfulness practices, if you want to call them. (laughs) Yay! Otherwise known as... I feel like we just had a breakthrough. No, you heard the tone of my voice when I said it. (laughs) Um, Otherwise known as... Breathing exercises or Epsom salt soaks. And um, I 
I personally see good results when I take um, magnesium before bed, which I haven't been doing because I ran out. So I need to prioritize replacing it, um, as well as wearing blue glasses and um, getting my kids to bed at a normal time. I, I know we didn't mention this, but like if you're a parent, one of the things that's really affected my own sleep habits is I've been letting the kids stay up later because they haven't been needing to get up as early to go physically into school. And then I seek that alone time. Do you know mm, what I'm talking yeah. about? Like that's the only what feels like freedom that I have in that time between when they go to bed and when I go to bed. And so if they're up later, I am pushing myself to be up later because I'm seeking time to just decompress and and be by myself. And that is not the only way that I can achieve that. Like there are other ways that I can find that time for myself that doesn't compromise my sleep. So I hope that me pointing out all of these things is not just me saying, I've got problems, but can help our listeners identify maybe some areas and things that are happening in their own life that are contributing to poor sleep habits or insomnia and um, some behavioral practices that we can focus on to improve that. Because I, I don't think that everything can be solved all the time without medicine. We talk about that here on the show medicine exists for a reason. But I do think that before jumping into that, there are a lot of um, behavioral and lifestyle factors that we can choose to do. Um, The other thing I want to mention, and uh, we've talked about this many times on the show before, and Sarah, maybe you know a reference we can refer people back to, um, is the idea of... not being super low carb before bed as being one of those um, hormonal factors that also affects sleep. It's not where we prioritized our education this show, but for those people who are maybe listening to the show and trying to work through some of those biohacks, can you just mention that a little? So, and I I actually have um, a couple of articles um, that touch on this that we can, uh, we can put in the show notes so that people can go reference them. Um, but this, so there's a couple of interesting things related to this is more generally related to sleep quality and hasn't necessarily been studied in the context of insomnia. But when we're talking about, um, habits to support sleep, this becomes really relevant in general. So, um, what's really fascinating is that there's a very strong link between diet and sleep quality and between mealtime and sleep quality. So, um, actually eating a higher fiber diet and uh, moderate fat. So not, not low fat, but uh, avoiding the sort of like, I eat a stick of butter for breakfast type high fat, um, really not supported by the science approach that we see um, in sort of segments of our community. Um, That uh, sort of higher fiber, so think lots of vegetables, um, and moderate fat has been shown to um, decrease the amount of time it takes to fall asleep and improve sleep quality in people. And then the other piece of it is uh, a starchy, slow-burning carb at dinner has been shown to be very, very helpful for sleep. So low-carb diets by themselves um, have been shown to disrupt sleep quality. It's one of the things that um, I see a lot when I'm, I'm teaching the AIP lecture series is a sort of accidental too low carb, um, implementation of the autoimmune protocol that disrupts sleep. And that's typically as soon as that person ups their carbohydrate intake, sleep just 
suddenly falls into place. Um, so another potential cause of sleep disruption, whether that technically qualifies as insomnia or not, is um, a, a too low carb diet. Um, and then the other piece is we are very, very well programmed to, um, uh, so basically to eating should be following a circadian rhythm. Um, and our hormones expect us to eat during the day and not eat during the nighttime. So part of what we can do to support sleep quality is actually eat breakfast. And we can refer our listeners back to our breakfast um, podcast episode, as well as our episode on intermittent fasting, where we touched on some other pieces of that. Um, and then eating dinner on the early side. So ideally, we wouldn't eat for about two hours at least two hours between dinner and going to bed. And actually four to five hours is optimal. So eating an early dinner, like if you we're going to bed at, uh, let's say 10 PM, um, eating dinner between five and six, and then not snacking after that is sort of ideal for supporting sleep quality. And I recognize that for a lot of people, that's really hard to accomplish with work schedules, with children's after school activities, at least when things get back to normal post COVID, um, and, and that can just be a, like, it's a really big head shift to start thinking about, oh, wait, like I'm used to eating dinner at 8.30 and now I got to figure out how to eat dinner at, you know, six. Like that, it is, it re is a really big challenge, but the science is really compelling on the benefits of an, uh, an early dinner and actually shifting our caloric intake. So it's a little bit more weighted towards the earlier part of the day. So um, I think the phrase is like breakfast, like a king lunch, like a, I don't know, I don't know, night Bishop castle. I was going to say then, a, a busy person who needs energy. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, dinner, like a popper is, is the, um, the, the, I don't know. It's obviously not the phrase because I can't remember it, but the idea being, um, you know, it's, it's a really healthy eating pattern to eat a, a bigger breakfast and lunch and then a lighter dinner and have dinner on the early side. And that actually is very well reflected in, in sleep quality. If you are someone who is not drawn to large breakfasts, I hear this quite often, especially because mm -hmm. I have a lot of people who um, follow me without a gallbladder or who used to be vegetarian, both of which changes digestion, I strongly suggest you go back and listen to our Importance of Breakfast show where we talk through all of that and recommendations and um, all of that. Because I know you might hear that and be like, well, I like to skip breakfast or I like to, you know, I, I don't feel hungry. One of the things that we talked about on that show is being um, an effective way to change if you do like to occasionally intermittent fast is to skip dinner instead and to jumpstart your mm -hmm. metabolism with breakfast and why that's important and how you can help your body become prepared for that. And I know since having that show, I have made more of an effort to do that myself um, and have found certain foods that work really well for that. Um, so for example, for me, I try to have hard boiled eggs and some sort of um, fibrous vegetable that's not super um, rich with fat because I don't have a gallbladder. It's hard for me to digest early in the morning having just slept for a long time. Um, and that works well for me. So I'm like, if I can do it, 
having been a vegetarian for a long time and not having a gallbladder, um, I think we, we all can. And I know that it does affect my psych, my hormonal cycle and my, um, body's cues for the rest of the day. I I wholeheartedly feel that every time I make the decision (laughs) to have a, um, breakfast within, you know, an hour of waking up that is a substantial meal for myself, I feel so much better throughout the day. And my, and it results in better sleep is my point, right? Like if you make Mm -hmm. these choices throughout the day and your, um, hormonal cycles, battles, um, your circadian rhythm and hormonal cycle of, um, all of the hunger hormones and all of those kinds of things lead to better sleep quality. So, that's the only input I have to give. I just want to remind, <laughs> I just want to remind our listeners that um, if they want to check out our recommended amber glasses, that our podcast sponsor Blue Blocks is offering fifteen percent off. So you can go to bluublox.com slash the whole view and use code the whole view for fifteen percent off. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Thank you for being part of this awesome community. We know that we would be besties if only you could chime in. Super besties. The best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media, subscribe to our newsletters, and share this podcast with others. Thank you for sharing. We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen. We just had like a normal ending to our podcast. <laughs> and what just and the beginning was so succinct and well-bridged. It's like all of that mumbo jumbo that it took us an hour to get the show up and running is what we need to do every week. <laughs> <laughs> not. Surely, surely we can find efficiency without realizing 20 minutes in that we're not recording. Um, At least we hadn't, like, started a show. I just, I'm, like, we're so lucky that you wanted to, like, have that clip. And I just, I'm, like, oh, goodness. What, what would have happened had we not (laughs) done that? Um, Again, I just, you know, like, just how sometimes it feels like, like, oh, man, it's just, like, another, like, curveball the universe is throwing. Um. I feel like that was like, yeah, the universe was like, yep, good job. Yes. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.